you go to the middle and then go left a little bit, you'll find Job. Job is one of the books that the Bible, that, that, books of the Bible that we have dubbed wisdom literature. And this year at Trinity, that's where we're spending all of our time, in the literature that the Bible uh, communicates wisdom to us through. And we've talked about Proverbs and the, the clarity that Proverbs point, uh, paints, uh, uh, paints the world for us. It, it, it points us to, to the order that is recognizable by us. Do this and this will usually happen. There's a lot of wisdom that comes from recognizing how the world works and trying to conform your life to it. In fact, it's a good way to fear the Lord, to recognize that He's the one who put the order in place and we may as well submit to that order rather than pushing back against that order. But there's a lot more to our life than what's clear. The wisdom literature is not just the sort of information we find in Proverbs. It's also the sort of information we find in Job, which is as far removed in some ways from the tone of Proverbs as you could be. Job is a story of a man who was wise in the way that Proverbs describes wisdom, who had all of the things that Proverbs suggests the wise will enjoy in life and then lost it all, but not because of anything that he did. It's the story of a man who experiences what all of us have experienced, either through our own lives or through the lives of our friends, those that we know and have observed. The fact that there's much innocent suffering in this world No one who's paying attention can deny that. And wisdom is nothing if not willing to pay attention, to see the world for what it is, to not hide it, to not try to paper over it with some sort of easy answers. And Job is one of our best examples of the Bible's honesty about the way the world works. The central theme of Job is what wisdom looks like in brokenness and suffering. And the central section of Job, in between sections that tell his story, is a long 30-plus chapter conversation. A conversation between Job and his friends, where his friends try to tell him the easy answers that are available to them for explaining what's going on in Job's life. Answers that Job knows have some truth to them, but aren't suited to what he's dealing with. In a conversation in which Job responds to his friends, At the very end of the book, in chapter 42, God himself speaks. When he speaks, he condemns Job's friends for not speaking rightly of him. And he celebrates Job for speaking rightly of him. Last week, we looked at the friends, what not to say about suffering. This week, we look at Job. Job is our model for wise responses to suffering. Job's response to suffering, what he says about God and about his experience in this conversation, that comes with the endorsement of God himself. So what does it look like to suffer in faith? That's the question we want to answer. And I think the answer is going to surprise you. I want us to look at four marks of Job's faith. Four marks that we should seek in our own faith if we're going to respond to suffering well with honesty, with wisdom, and with faith. I want to read from the first section that we're going to, re- that we're going to consider together this morning from Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Hopefully you've found that by now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first mark of Job's faith we're going to consider together this morning is Job's humility before God. The first mark of a wise response to suffering. What it looks like to suffer in faith is humility before God. To to learn from this initial response that Job gives, the one that we just read together, it's really, really important to remember the context. This was given much, in much more detail two weeks ago. That sermon's online. If you guys weren't here then and you want to get some more detail about what I'm just going to scan for us this morning, this is Job's response to a series of events that, that it's very difficult for us to even imagine. Job lost everything in a single day. Job was a wise man. He feared the Lord. And he enjoyed all the benefits that Proverbs says the wise should expect to enjoy. He had money. He had a family that was large and healthy and happy. He had good reputation among his friends. He had security and peace. Then in a scene that's recorded for us, but not witnessed by Job, Job's adversary, the Satan, the accuser, comes into the presence of God. Job's dearest friend with an accusation that hangs over the entire book of Job like a cloud. The accuser unknown to Job in the presence of God, speaking to God, makes this audacious claim. Job's only good because Job's got it all. Job only fears the Lord, only worships the Lord, only looks to God with love because Job is getting everything that he or anyone else could ever want out of life. Underneath this audacious claim of the adversary, underneath it is another claim, a claim not about Job and the shallow hypocrisy of his faith, but a claim about God. Underneath his criticism of Job, his cynicism about the genuineness of Job's faith, is the adversary's belief that God can't satisfy by himself. That the only reason anyone could ever worship him, love him, trust him, and serve him, is if that someone were receiving from him the things that person really wants. That's his claim. That God isn't satisfying apart from what he gives. And God in his sovereign power for his own purposes. He decides to prove Satan wrong. In the person of his friend Job. In a single day. God allows Satan. To strip away everything that Job loved. He loses all of his possessions. He loses all. All of his children. And he even loses the health of his body. And chapter 1 verses 20 to 22. Records Job's initial response. To this news. His response. 
to the news is exactly what I would expect your response to be. His response isn't stoicism. It's not detachment. It's not que sera, sera. His response, using the customs of his time and place, is to rip apart his robe. Perhaps just an, an external way of showing what his life feels like. His soul, his heart is ripped apart. He shaves his head. Perhaps an identification with the dead. And he falls to the ground. Who wouldn't collapse under the weight of this news? But when he falls, he falls not only in genuine, understandable, inevitable despair. He falls in worship. He did what the Satan didn't think he would do. Having lost everything and standing to gain nothing by it, he ascribes value to God. He acknowledges there is nothing good he has ever experienced in his life that didn't come as a gift undeserved from God. He acknowledges the God who gave has the right to take away. It wasn't his to begin with. Everything he has, friends, everything you have, and therefore everything you could lose, belongs ultimately to God and not to you. Naked he came, naked he'll return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be his name. The first piece to our model of faithful suffering is humility before God. Does that even seem possible to you? What Job is modeling here is he's lost everything. And in his response, his first response is not to unpack his own feelings about it. That would be understandable. It's not to line out all the things that he lost and talk about how much he wishes he could have them back. That would be understandable. His first response is not to what he lost at all, but to view what he had lost in light of God. We're told earlier in chapter 1 that Job fears the Lord. We know what that language means. It's all over Proverbs. That's where wisdom starts. Wisdom starts with our ability to see everything in our life, good and bad, in light of God as the one who's behind it. There is nothing that happens to us that God is not involved in. That's the hard truth that Job is embracing here. It's not that Job didn't grieve. It isn't that you shouldn't grieve. It makes sense that we'd rather have what we love than lose what we love. And Job felt that way too. But but in Job's grief, his grief didn't give way to what we might call self-pity. As one pastor put it, self-pity is just pride showing up in the lives of those who are weak or suffering or broken. Just like boasting is pride showing up in the lives of the strong. 
those who are successful. To respond with self-pity, which is what I would have done, would be to fixate on my own experience of what's hard. To be blinded by my own experience of what's hard to the fact that God is behind it all, to the fact that God has bearing on it all, to the fact that I haven't been able to secure what I have and can't prevent it being taken away. Job knows that his comfort is not God's highest priority. And his own comfort isn't his highest priority. And in this sense, Job has proved Satan wrong. Faith and suffering looks like humility before God. It looks like loving God more than what we lose. Now, I said earlier that Job's faith might surprise you. So far... My guess is, this is maybe what you expected from a hero of the Bible. A faith that seems impossible for you. A faith that seems just unrealistic, superhuman, maybe even off-putting. Job's response reads like the end to a story. Could have ended right there. Would have been powerful. But it would have been really hard for us to be helped by it, wouldn't it? Would have been a great ideal to strive for. Would have been very hard to imagine it in our own experience. But Job is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is not only about happy endings all the time. Wisdom literature gets what the world is like. It gets what we're like. And we're only at the beginning of Job's experience. This is the end of chapter 1. There's 41 more chapters. And most of the 41 more chapters focus not on Job at his best, but on Job at his weakest. And they model for us what it looks like to hold on in faith while we wait for God to give us the strength to respond the way Job did at first. One of my favorite descriptions of what comes after this and the conversation that that unfolds from this point is of Job's faith kind of like waves. This one is a, a big wave of faith that crashes on the sand in the midst of his suffering. But as it spins its energy, eventually it begins to decline, to recede, back down into the ocean of his grief. Another faith wave comes in and crashes on the sand. We're going to track with these waves while they crash, but they recede back into his loneliness and his pain. What we want to understand is where Job's faith shows up so that we can understand where our faith is showing up, how we ought to pray towards greater faith. And we want to launch from the humility before God that is an ultimate ideal into the honesty with God that's available for all of us no matter where we are. That's the second mark of Job's faith, honesty with God. Job had a lot of time to think, sitting all alone on an ash pile, scraping at his sores with broken pottery. 
And in his thinking, in his grieving, in his suffering, Job was led to some profound questions. See, Job had not seen what we have seen as readers of this book. He didn't know the conversations that had, had, that had gone on between God and the Satan. He didn't know that God was proving something good for him in his life, that God can satisfy even when everything else is stripped away. All Job knew was that he had lost everything and he didn't do anything to deserve what he'd lost. And we know as readers that he's right, that he's not without sin, but that it was his innocence, his goodness, his righteousness that brought this on him. It was the goodness of Job that that made God willing to use him to prove a point for his good and for our good. We know Job is right. Job has no idea. And in his ignorance about what's going on behind the scenes, Job points us to a wise response to suffering. The fact that wisdom never, ever requires pretending that things make sense when they don't. Wisdom never requires pretending that things make sense. That was the folly of Job's friends. We talked about that last week. And there's an honesty to Job that's completely lacking in his comforters. They don't have categories to explain innocent suffering, so they shut themselves off to it. It just can't be. Job is honest in a way that they weren't. I want to introduce you to his honesty. It comes up in lots of different places, but I want to point you to it in Job chapter 9 and 10. And then walk through a little bit about what he, what he models for us here. I want to pick up in chapter 9, verse 21. I'm just going to let Job's words stand for themselves, and then we'll talk about them. Flip over to Job chapter 9, verse 21, then we're going to read some from chapter 10 as well. This is what Job says. This is Job, the same Job that said, Blessed be the name of the Lord, now says, I am blameless. I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys, he being God, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of his judges. If it's not he, who then is it? Get that verse, friends. It's critical. Job realizes he can't chalk this up to the world just being the world. If God isn't behind all that's happened to him, who? Flip over to chapter 10. Begin to pick up in verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress? To despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Although you know that I'm not guilty and there's none to deliver out of your hand. Your hands fashioned and made me. He believes in God. 
his sovereignty, his power behind all that exists. And now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember, you made me like clay. And will you return me to the dust? Look ahead to verse 18. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I'd not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness. Remember, friends, this is what God says about Job when all is said and done. God speaks to Job's friends and he says to them, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Somehow, what we just read, Job in his honesty, Job in his protest, is right. He says things that aren't true. But he says things that from his perspective seem true. How is his faith? How is, how is this wisdom? Well, I've already said, wisdom never pretends that things make sense when they don't. Wisdom never pretends that things aren't the way that they are. Only a fool would deny the reality of innocent suffering. Haven't we just seen an example of it? This week in Charleston, where faithful brothers and sisters gathered for prayer and Bible study are mowed down from nothing. Tell me how that makes sense. This is the reality that Job's friends are denying, but Job won't deny it. And in his honesty about what doesn't make sense, Job models for us the response of a believer. And here's why. This is the key. Only a believer can confront the reality of innocent suffering with tension, with angst, as a problem rather than as a tragedy. And see, see, one of Job's neighbors, the neighbors of Israel, they believed in a whole host of gods that inhabited the world, that were behind the forces of the world, often fighting with each other, often taking out humans who were allied with one of their competing gods. Job doesn't believe that. He can't chalk up what's happening to a, a decisive strategic action of a competing god. Job's not a dualist who believes that the powers of evil have the same power as the powers of good and that sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins. He knows God sits enthroned above all and no one lifts a finger that God doesn't allow. And Job is not a materialist like many of our friends are today. He's not one who 
ropes off the activity of God from the details of our lives. He's not one who can just chalk up what's happened to him as uh, the brutal reality of the world, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog. In a world like that, things like this happen. What are you going to do? Job doesn't have that luxury. Someone who can write off what's happened to him in that way would never struggle like Job is struggling. Job is torn. Job doesn't know what to say. Job is confused. Job, for Job, things don't add up or make sense. And the reason they don't add up or make sense is that Job believes. He believes that he's in the right, that he's innocent here, but he also believes that God's behind it, that ultimately this is God doing this to him. As Job puts it in chapter 6, your arrows are in me, your poison in me. He knows it is God that's behind it. And he has no idea what to do with that. Job is grappling with what's been called the problem of evil, the problem of pain. How, in a world where there's a sovereign God who is just and good, can evil exist? Can suffering of the innocent exist? That's only a problem for the believer. Is it a problem for you this morning? Maybe even, friends, you don't think of yourselves as very religious. Don't think of yourself as a believer in this God. But I wonder if, if you feel tension over the, the shooting in Charleston that happened this week, over, over countless other examples of the innocent suffering. If that feels not right to you, if inside you something protests against it, I wonder if that isn't evidence in you that you know you were made and our world is even now ruled by a God who hates what's happened but has somehow, for some reason, unknown to us, allowed it. Only a believer can struggle with this problem. And Job models faith for us because he's honest about it. He asks, what is going on? In his sorrow, he looks for God behind it. The third thing that Job models for us, the third mark of his faith is his hunger for God. Job is facing a contradiction between what should be and what is. What should be true of a God who's powerful and good. What should be true of his life as one who's innocent. And he faces this gap between what is and what he knows should be. He faces this gap with wisdom. Because he sees the limits of his own wisdom. And he goes searching for answers. What we saw in Proverbs is that one of the central marks of the wise is that they know they don't have everything figured out. The wise are aware that the world is much bigger than what they recognize so far. The wise are constantly looking for insight. They're constantly asking for more wisdom from anywhere that they can find it. And Job models that. He doesn't just sit back with his angst over what's happened to him. He goes for God through what's happened to him. So just like in his early response of humility, he realized that his suffering was ultimately about God and not just about him. Even in his anxiety over what's happening to him, even in his honest questioning of God, he's still recognizing this is more about God 
than it is about what I've lost. Nowhere in his questioning does he, does he list out all the things that had been stripped away and, and want them back. He wants to know where God is. He wants to know what God is doing. He wants to restore the relationship of trust that he had with God because God has become clouded to him. He's disoriented. He doesn't know what God is up to, whether he can rest, trust in his presence, whether he can easily rely on him. So all through Job's wrestling, we see Job again and again calling out to God to hear him, to speak to him. I want to give you just one example. Chapter 13. Really the whole chapter models this. I want to point you to a couple of examples within it. Verses 3 to 8 for the context. Job is responding to his friends who've told him, basically, what's happening to you is your fault. If you want to get better, you need to repent. And Job said, Job will not let them speak for God. He wants to hear God. He doesn't want to hear from them. He says to them, I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewashed with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? In other words, you don't speak for Him. Stop acting like you do. I won't rest until I hear from Him. I want God in the midst of my suffering. Flip over verses 13 to 24. Let me have silence and I'll speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? In other words, I'm ready to risk it all. I just want him. I want to know who he is in this, what he's doing in this. Though he slay me, verse 15 says, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. I have prepared my case, verse 18 says. I know I shall be in the right. Who is there to contend with me? Then I'd be silent and die. Only grant me two things, he speaks to God, and I won't hide from your face. Hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me. Let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I'll answer. Let me speak and you reply to me. You see what Job models here. He knows that in his suffering, the most important thing, the one with whom he has to do, is God. God is at the center of it. He's hidden from his view. He doesn't understand his ways, but he's not resting with that. He's not fatalistic about that. There's no kesara in Job. He is going for it. He knows that his only hope is to hear from and speak to God. He wants to restore fellowship with him so he doesn't have to be afraid. He wants access to him. He's pleading out for any way to get to him. And underneath it all, I think verse 15 summarizes it best. Job is making a bet that even if he kills me, still I'm going to hope in him because I don't have anywhere else to go. I can't protect or restore what I have loved and lost. He may slay me. But I'll hope in him because I don't have anywhere else to go. Here's the way another pastor put it. A writer named Christopher Ash. This is the mark of a true worshiper. 
Even when I can't understand what God is doing, I know it is God with whom I have to deal because He's God. That is what it is to be a worshiper, to bow down before the one who alone is God. Job is not a promise that God is going to answer us in a way that satisfies us. Job never got the answers he was looking for. God is always God in Job, always bigger, always beyond our ability to reach him. But Job is celebrated by God for his hunger, for his refusal to give in to passivity. The scriptures, and Job in particular, they leave room for us to have to suffer without knowing why. For God to be hidden somewhat from our view. To be mysterious to us. The scriptures leave room for ignorance in our faith. But they don't leave room for passivity. Faith shows up when we run for him. When we won't let him go. When we knock and knock and knock. When we cry out and cry out and cry out. When we won't take no for an answer. But grab on to the hope that he's given to us. And plead with him to show himself for us. There is hope. Job found it. In his hunger for God, one of the most incredible anticipations of Jesus comes up. I think of it as the biggest wave of faith crashing up on the sand. It doesn't last. It recedes. For a time, Job goes back into the mystery. But it's a huge, tsunami-sized wave. And it points us where I want to leave you this morning. In the midst of our sorrow, in suffering we can't understand, in the midst of questions that won't be answered for us, there is a word from God that speaks through the silence that troubled Job and promises a hope that puts all else, all of our loss in perspective. Job found it. He points us to it in chapter 19. It would be good to read the entire chapter. I want to encourage you to do that. Because the entire chapter unpacks the brutal honesty with which Job sized up his condition before this moment of faith. It's one of the darkest passages. The first part of 19, chapter 19, is one of the darkest passages in the book. It's ugly. But out of it, here comes Job's confession of faith. Here's what he says, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after everything, including my life, has been stripped away, yet in my flesh I shall see God. whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. What is it that Job knows? Job knows that he's going to die. His death, the brevity of his life, 
the brevity of all things with which he'd filled his life, that had come for him into crystal clear focus when all of it was stripped away. The impermanence of it. The lack of ability in those things to protect him from his own vulnerability before the universe, before the passage of time and the decay of his body. He knows he's going to die. Chapter 14, the first few verses describe the problem of death in beautiful, vivid imagery I encourage you to read. That's the backdrop to chapter 19. Job is realizing his death is an even bigger problem than the loss of all the things that he had loved. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago about his restoration in chapter 42. Job gets back a lot of the stuff that he lost, even more. But the last verse in the chapter is, Job dies. Once again, he loses it all. And he knows that's going to happen. So what does Job know? He knows he's going to die. That puts in perspective everything that he's lost. He doesn't need more stuff. He doesn't need more kids. He doesn't need a restored reputation. He needs redemption. And he knows it. He also knows that he has a living redeemer. That's chapter 19, verse 25. He knows that he has one who stands for him. One who stands outside of the process of time. Outside of the sin that makes death necessary. One who stands for him, over him as vindication. He knows that this living redeemer will stand upon the earth. The word is really the dust. It's often a reference to death, to to the grave. He knows that he has a living redeemer who will one day stand upon the, the dust of death as victorious over it who will stand over Job's own grave as a living testimony to his innocence, to his worthiness. He knows that he has a living Redeemer who will outlast the tombstone he's essentially asking for in verses 23 and 24, inscribed in the stone a testimony to his innocence. He knows this living Redeemer will one day stand upon death for him. He knows that he'll see this Redeemer, this God in person. In his flesh. What did he mean? What could he have meant? He doesn't unpack it. He doesn't explain it. Very little of Israel's writings to this point had imagined a life beyond death in the way that the New Testament unpacks it. Job is speaking beyond himself here. He's grasping at a hope that's implanted in him that he himself can't even fully understand. Friends, this is what Christians believe has happened in Jesus. That the same God that was behind all that happened to Job actually took on flesh, actually stood upon the earth, actually gave up his own body to the same pain that Job had experienced. That this same God suffered the loss of all things. He emptied himself and became nothing, even though he was innocent. He did it from obedience. He lost even his life, and he did it willingly. Friends, for all of our innocent suffering, we are also guilty. We are also captive, every one of us, to the punishment of death, and we deserve it. Because we have turned our backs on the God who gave us life. This man, this redeemer, this God in flesh did not deserve it. He took a punishment that was meant for us. In his suffering on the cross, he faced, he faced the question that we face. That Job is wrestling with. 
whether or not vindication is even possible. When he hung upon the cross, he endured the silence of God just like Job did. He asked anguished questions just like Job did. My God, why have you forsaken me? And he got no answer. For three days, his body lay in the grave. An unanswered question to Satan's charge against him. This one isn't worthy either. This one got what he deserved. But on the third day, Christ rose. Paul tells us he rose according to the scriptures. I think Paul meant, in part, Job 19. He knows that Christ had to rise. He had to stand upon death, crushing it as its victor. He had to stand for us. Our vindication and Job's, if any of us were to have any hope. This is the ultimate ground of our faith when we suffer. This is how we judge the trustworthiness of God. Not based on whether he ever gives us full answers to why we experience what we do. Not based on whether he ever takes away the pain that we experience not based on whether he ever restores to us the things that we've lost. We judge the trustworthiness of God in the midst of our pain based on whether he is able to once and for all defeat the ultimate enemy that stands against all of us. Can he defeat death? The death that we deserve? If he can, if he has in Christ, we can trust him even when we don't understand. Father, that faith is too much for us. You've done what's necessary to save us. We also need you to do what's necessary for us to believe it. Especially when we're in pain. By your Spirit, speak peace to our hearts, we pray. Help us to trust that you are for us, not against us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.